This is a Timmet podcast. This podcast is part of the series On the Marge. The title of this episode is Chichaco Checklist, Part 2 of 2. Chichaco Checklist, Part 2. And the weather, isn't it really cold? Well, I suppose it used to be. The coldest temperature in North America, minus 63 C, was recorded at Snag, Yukon, in 1947. But climate change is warming the North faster than any part of North America. Sure, it does get cold in Yukon, but it's not significantly different than in Winnipeg or Edmonton. And generally in Whitehorse, anyway, we rarely have raging blizzards, ice storms, or wild melt-thaw cycles. In some parts of Canada, people look on weather as a limitation. Oh, it's really cold today, so I guess I won't go out. In Yukon, the weather is just a factor in planning daily events. Oh, it's really cold today, so I guess I'll wear my heavy parka and furry hat. All the mountains, valleys, rivers, and lakes mean that the temperature can vary a lot over a very short distance. It's not unheard of for there to be a 7 to 10 degree difference between the temperature in Whitehorse and at some of the country residential areas 20 or 30 minutes outside of town. The official weather comes from the airport, where it can be raining while downtown is sunny. And of course, the temperature can be wildly different in the communities. The summers are much hotter, and the winters are much colder in Dawson and Old Crow. And on a drive up from Edmonton one January, I made several climate-related discoveries at minus 44 in Watson Lake. First, the thermometer in my car gave up at minus 30. I didn't actually realize the temperature was minus 44. Second, my car wouldn't start even after being plugged in overnight. The tow truck operator laughed at me because I didn't have a battery heater. Well, I had a block heater, but I didn't even know that a battery heater was a thing. Some people also have oil pan heaters, three electrical cords coming out of the front of their cars. But the block heater alone has been okay in Whitehorse. Many houses are heated by heating oil, which is a product almost like diesel. Many new houses skip that and go with electrical heat, although Yukon is running out of electricity. Most electricity comes from hydro, with diesel generators in the isolated communities. Installation of an LNG generating plant in Whitehorse a few years ago was controversial. There's a new solar energy project going into Old Crow, a renewed interest in wind and solar in other areas. The First Nations seem to be taking the lead on renewable energy. The Walnut Crescent B&B has a wood stove that provides all the heat, even though there are electric baseboards too. That means some work splitting and stacking in the summer. It also requires a real awareness of the changing weather to know when to put on the stove. What's the forecast today? How cold is it now? How sunny will it be this afternoon? The newspaper business in Yukon is tightly linked to heating by wood. There are two main newspapers in Whitehorse. The Whitehorse Daily Star, which doesn't actually publish daily, and the Yukon News, which actually has more news from outside than from Yukon. There's also the free weekly What's Up Yukon paper for social calendar planning purposes and the bi-weekly French language Aurora Boreal. That might sound like a lot of newspaper for keeping a wood stove going. However, we read the star online and the What's Up has too much color to use in the stove, but it's really good for lining the compost box. 
It's hard to find the current edition of the French paper, and in any case, Mara complains that its content is pretty bland. Happily, it just so happens that two Yukon news per week almost exactly balances our fire-starting needs over a whole year. One of the papers has better classifieds than the other, and the news they cover overlaps only slightly. An in-depth understanding of what's going on in Yukon requires reading the star, the news, and the what's up together. And how do you find your way around Whitehorse? Well, I struggled with downtown Whitehorse street names when I arrived. I still do. I mean, everyone knows 2nd Avenue and 4th Avenue and Main Street, of course. But all the cross streets that run parallel to Main, mostly carrying the names of historical figures, well, I can never remember which is which. I felt a lot better when I found that most sourdoughs don't know all the names either. They navigate by landmarks. I think it's on the street that has the log skyscrapers on it. Or, get off the bus by the old Canadian Tire. Of course, this is sometimes made difficult by the real old-timers who navigate by landmarks that have disappeared. You know, just around the corner from the White Horse Inn. Because nobody knows the street names, notices for downtown event locations are rarely accompanied by addresses. The Folk Society Coffee House evenings invariably take place in United Church Basement. Annual general meetings are often held in the Sport Yukon Building, and events might occur in Hellaby Hall. If you're new to town, you have to ask where these places are, and you'll get directions starting from the old Toyota dealership or the big RCMP building, for example. A related issue cropped up for me our first Christmas here when I was checking all the newspapers to prepare for Boxing Day specials. Some stores I had never heard of. Not only did I not know where they were located, the ads gave no addresses, but the text-only ads gave absolutely no idea of what the stores actually sold, either. Everything will be 50% off at Smith's store, Boxing Day only. Well, okay. People from outside who are in Whitehorse for conferences in the downtown luxury hotels may go for walks in the evening. They'll enjoy the riverfront, walk through the business district, and may venture into the residential areas between 4th Avenue and the Clay Cliffs. Knowing that Whitehorse has a population of over 25,000, they ask, but where do all the people live? Some visitors may make it to Riverdale, but few visit Copper Ridge, Porter Creek, or the other satellite suburbs. Travelers approaching Whitehorse by highway from the south are warned by all the highway signs that they are approaching Whitehorse, so they keep watching for signs of the city. They pass by the gas station, an industrial park at McCray, followed by a motel, and a few more scattered signs of civilization. Then the forest closes in on the highway again. Tourists pull off at the way station and ask, Where is Whitehorse, anyway? Was that it? Did we miss it? Yes, tourists are important to the Yukon economy. The RVs with strange license plates and the direct flights from Europe start arriving in May. By June, the big colorful bus tour buses from Holland, America are everywhere, and the diversity of languages in Superstore rivals that of any cosmopolitan European city. Generally, the quality of tourists we get here is quite high, and people know something about Yukon before they arrive. Europeans always ask where they can see wild animals, or perhaps pick up some gold that just might be lying around. The Americans usually want to know how to find Walmart. An ambulance attendant assured me that June is heart and stroke month in Yukon. This has nothing to do with any national fundraising campaign, 
but is based strictly on the number of ambulance calls to RV parks, where many American RVs spend the night because they can't stay at Walmart anymore. Elderly drivers piloting big vehicles over long distances on unfamiliar, sometimes gravel, roads become stressed and may forget to take their evening meds. The fact that it doesn't get dark in summer may have something to do with it. When is evening, anyway? The end result is a spike of tourists in June who get to test out our medical system, which is generally pretty good, and the limits of their travel insurance, where mileage may vary. Okay, so I don't know if this is true. Finding a comfortable and affordable place to live in Whitehorse is difficult. It's worse in Dawson, but completely different in Farrell, where rows of empty houses line the streets. This leads to some interesting situations. Some B&Bs rent out beds without breakfast for months at a time. Garden sheds with access to house facilities may be snapped up for $600 a month during the summer. Some people have become perpetual house sitters. They have no fixed address and go from house to house looking after plants and pets when the occupants are away. Many places are never advertised, but are rented to friends of friends before the previous occupants are even gone. The lack of housing is difficult enough for people with good jobs and leads to some interesting house-sharing arrangements. It also means that the Robert Service campground near the Hydro Dam is full of long-term residents all summer. A tent city sprang up outside the main government administration building one year. Another group that has a difficult time is pet owners looking to rent. The papers frequently carry ads like, couple with two well-behaved dogs desperately looking for any type of rental accommodation, anywhere, at any price. Maybe this represents a lucrative business opportunity, an apartment building restricted to people with pets. The people here are different than those in any other city I've lived. They're generally nice, and they all look me in the eye, nod, and say hello when I meet them in the street. These are complete strangers, even teenagers. Of course, after a month or two, the people I met were no longer strangers. They were people from work, those I'd met in the bus, or at the folk society evenings, or maybe at Toastmasters, or just people I didn't really know but had already nodded to and said hello once or twice on the street before. Etiquette in Whitehorse is to shout out, Thank you! or simply wave when getting off a city transit bus. The bus driver, who is watching in the rear view mirror, will wave back. I've never seen that in any other city. Moving up from outside, I found Whitehorse to be small, but it's all a matter of perspective, I suppose. I met a woman from Dawson who was in Whitehorse for several days. She was anxious to get home because she found the noise, the traffic, and the jostling crowds in Whitehorse to be quite overwhelming. Another friend who had moved up from Dawson years ago admitted that in her first year in Whitehorse, she had found the section of road in front of Boston Pizza quite intimidating. Two lanes of traffic in each direction, going around a curve at speeds up to 50 kilometers an hour. Of course, small is an advantage too. Nothing is more than 10 minutes away. The airport, the ski hill, downtown, the golf courses, Canada Game Center, and cross-country skiing. Sure, we sometimes complain about the heavy traffic, but one cycle of the traffic lights usually clears that out. From a population perspective, Yukon is pretty small compared to anywhere else outside. Non-Yukoners shake their heads in disbelief when I tell them that for a population half that of the city of St. Albert, Alberta, we have a whole provincial infrastructure, complete with Motor Vehicles Branch, Bureau of Statistics, Geological Survey, Education Department, and Legislative Assembly with 19 MLAs.
Oh yes, one MP and one senator. People who have never been here don't know much about Yukon, aside from what they've learned from Robert Service and Jack London. I sometimes think of Yukon as some tiny, remote, Shangri-La-like kingdom, hidden away from the outside world. Everyone knows quite well what's going on outside, but nobody outside even knows we exist. Yes, all the BNRs, sourdoughs, and chachacos agree that Yukon is pretty skookum, even if some of us do have blue jug water. This has been a Timmet podcast in a series called On the Marge. Instrumental intro and exit are courtesy of Kate Weeks. If you would like more of these podcasts, check out the podcast website at timmet.ca slash podcasts. That's T-I-M-M-I-T dot C-A slash podcasts.